What's up, Internet? My name's David Webb. And I'm Arielle Edwards. It's Monday, June, June 1st. 1st. It's a new month. 2020. <laughs> we get nerdy nightly. <laughs> we thought we'd share it with you. <laughs> Well, it's prequel week. It is prequel week. Um, but yeah. I think I, I think it's fair to start by saying that there is a lot going on in the world. And we talked about whether we were even going to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because there's a lot of feelings going on. It's been a really tough week. Uh, my grandmother passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on a larger scale than that, um, the needless death of George Floyd and everything going on around that has been really difficult uh, for everyone, particularly people who do not look like us. Uh, and I think it's, it's um, you know, it just has to be acknowledged at the top of this that it's, it's a tough week for everyone and there's a lot of emotion and a lot of pain in the world right now. And I think uh, we have committed to making this podcast and we wanted to come at it with the idea that, you know, maybe there are people who want to take an hour to try and think about something else and we might be able to give that to them. Mm-hmm. But we didn't want to do that without also acknowledging right up top that um, it's tough. Uh, I know we both sit in the camp of being very pro Black Lives Matter and the movement and the protesters and yeah, to, to everyone out on the streets, uh, just stay safe, stay careful. It's a crazy time. Yeah, it's been hard to watch, but you know, ways to support you and whatever way we can in our tiny little corner of Calgary. (laughs) Yeah, we feel very far away from things right now, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, a blessing and a curse. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, we exist with a kind of privilege where we don't really need any more blessings. And yet we seem to have gathered up another one. Um, But yeah, we just wanted to acknowledge that up front, just so uh, just it needs to be said. We're going to talk about The Hobbit uh, a fan edit and how that changed the prequels and how those prequels compared to the Star Wars prequels today. And of course, we're going to end it with our discussion of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, the new Suzanne Collins Hunger Games book, also mm-hmm. a prequel. That's the theme. And we just wanted to say that if you're having a hard time, we totally understand. You know, we're online, reach out if you need it. And uh, if you can, donate. If you can't donate, if you just don't have it, you know what? There is an easy way to sign a petition just text floyd f-l-o-i-d to 55156 and uh, you can sign the color of change petition there to just try and do better in the future Mm -hmm. and with that said i think we're gonna jump right into our discussion of uh the four hour and 21 minute cut fan edit of the three hobbit movies cut down to one and what it took out which was a lot yeah what it changed which wasn't too much and what just kind of didn't work about it for us yeah yeah there was a lot that yeah it definitely fell apart in the last third quarter last third to like a quarter of the movie mm-hmm. um which uh, you know i y- 
when we first started watching it, I was pleasantly surprised. There were things that worked and I was very happy about. And The pacing was really nice. It was great, yeah. It was going in a direction that I really liked, but that didn't quite last to the very end. It's just tough that there's so much going on in that final battle scene. Mm-hmm. And part of why the last movie is so long is to explain who everyone is and why they're there. Yeah. And without that, people just kind of show up or disappear with like no Huey explanation. Like, you're just dead. Yeah, but... you but never see that. You know, yeah, you don't see that at all. It's not even mentioned, I don't think. Volg is gone. Yeah. All of a sudden. Um, yeah, Tar- it's Tariel is never there. Tariel... She's cut. Tariel is never there. She's in the boat in Lake Town. Yeah, but she, like... But just because they could We never see her get to Lake Town. Yeah. Like, she's only in that boat because they couldn't edit her out of the cut it feels like yeah and you mostly just see the back of her head yeah exactly she's not meant to she's not supposed to be there (laughs) the thing the thing that was the first thing that struck me as being like kind of weird was they leave rivendell um and in the original trilogy which we have watched recently Mm -hmm. they leave with gandalf kind of taking up elrond's time so that they can sneak out and that's kind elrond and gandalf find out together that they're gone and mm-hmm. so you understand that Gandalf isn't with them, but this cuts over all of the White Council stuff with Saruman and Galadriel. And so they, they kind of just leave and Gandalf's not there. Yeah, and then he's gone. And then he appears at the end of the ca- the goblin scene. Uh, he just appears yes. through the wall. Yeah, yeah, comes out of nowhere. Yeah. No explanation, which, you know, you're taking, like you're taking material that's already there and you're splicing it together. So mm-hmm. there's going to be issues with that. Um bless you thanks uh no radagast <laughs> yeah he was, oh yeah he wasn't in it at yeah. all no oh, necromancer shoot. yeah what's crazy is it was not easy to digest at God, four yeah. hours and 21 minutes. it was still so much yeah like like you could have cut out more honestly <laughs> Would like, it have truly. made any sense though like with with everything they added at the end could you have cut out more and it's still function as a story without reshooting some of the end yeah that's the thing is i don't think you could do it without fundamentally changing the script and shooting and all that like that's that yeah that would be almost impossible because we both kind of agree that the hobbit films as prequels don't necessarily work no not a fan the first one i think is the best yeah it's you know enjoyable it's not my favorite but martin freeman's energy and his performance really carries the movies a lot definitely he is so wonderful he and ian mckellen are the best Mm -hmm. parts of the movies for sure hands down yeah i also i actually really like kiwi i'm a fan of the actor and like the job that he does i mean sure given given the job (laughs) that he was given yeah i think that he performs every scene exactly how i want him to yeah yeah i think like the actor's talent is Mm -hmm. definitely high um yeah i just have issues with the actual character itself with the arc of it yeah Yeah. that i find it hard for that part of the movie to be enjoyable um well i yeah i mean the the dragon sickness section is tough Mm-hmm. the him barricading everybody out and those dwarves i get that they're loyal to him but it's really hard to watch those scenes 
in yeah. either version but in this version especially, especially it comes out of absolutely nowhere yeah. like it's a real just nosedive well and at least the, the the giant gold statue dwarf moment is weird in the in the full three movie version mm-hmm. of this but when you take that out and you take out like the gold and all of the opulence of that gold moment the dragon sickness truly comes out of nowhere yeah because at least that giant gold dwarf, you're like, oh, I understand this greed. It's it's uh, symbolic more than it is realistic yep. as a storytelling device of dwarven greed. And I get that. Mm-hmm. Without that, in this take, it is... He just sort of suddenly has it. Yeah. And also suddenly doesn't have it. Because so much is cut out in between as well, you kind of lose a lot of... He goes and walks on the gold lake for like a minute. And he's like, oh, man, I messed up bad. Yeah, it's... I mean, the problem is I don't think it's very well done in the original cuts anyways. <laughs> so it, it, it's so hard because it it's not there isn't a lot of lead up to it. Yeah. You don't see that aspect of Thorin in the earlier movies. Mm hmm. I mean, he's dedicated and he's kind of one-minded about getting to the mountain, but he's so kind to the other dwarves. Mm-hmm. He becomes so fond of Bilbo. Yeah, there's a real sense of, like, camaraderie and, like, just kinship, I think. And for him to drop that so quickly is surprising. Yeah. Which makes me think that it's some kind of magical idea that dragon sickness might literally be a sickness mm-hmm. rather than it being some him being greedy i thought that's what it was like i whenever i watched it i always was like yeah dragon sickness is an actual like illness but then he just kind of cures himself he like stares at the gold and he's like i'm better why would he be the only one who like does it have to be that the leader you have so in order to get dragon sickness you have to be wealthy beyond belief and also be thought of as a leader by yourself and other people like there's too many weird holes that have to be filled with just thorin in order to make sense of that as a disease yeah and so that's that that line isn't very clearly drawn unless it's something in his bloodline like it's genetic but then why doesn't keely feel it or feely because they're both his cousins i think they're his nephews his sister's sons i believe yeah so it just it becomes uh it becomes difficult to understand where it comes from and why yeah yeah i i don't think it's very well done or explained and as a result it's confusing and i don't know i also you know it becomes one of those things where i feel like practically now that they've taken back the mountain the first thing you would want to do is set up lake town again because that's going to be where trade comes in and out yeah and you would want to build your relationship with the Merkwood elves back up because that's who you're trading with and yeah. to do that, the amount that you have to give away, the elves want a necklace. <laughs> well, yeah, they want those specific, like that little pile of gems with the jewelry. I mean, I know it's and inconsequential gold, compared to could, you. Literally, have more gold. You could build Lake Town out of gold, out of that pile <laughs> of gold. It is large enough that you could build the whole city in a replica to scale of gold. Yeah. What could you? It, it just. It, the idea that he's so stingy so quickly deflates the tension of those scenes to me. Yeah. Yeah, it almost just seems like there's no 
like yeah he doesn't even consider it for a second there's no even like possibility it's just like he completely changes character and it's so sudden even more so in this cut and i I just yeah i found it so jarring to watch Mm -hmm. i think that was really when the movie started falling apart for me yeah well and i i commend them like the the thing about the uh, this cut specifically i really found impressive was the transitions were very well done yeah the music in the transitions covered the edits um i i was commending it right away at the beginning because i really loved cutting the beginning cutting all the prologue stuff yeah straight to the action yeah it starts with gandalf and bilbo talking outside of his house and it's a great beginning the first 30 minutes or so is really well paced yep and if you like the hobbit but you don't want to watch all three movies i think this isn't a bad way to revisit it yeah especially if you've already seen it if you've never seen the hobbit before the three films i think this would be weird to go through just because people kind of start teleporting around at some point yeah gandalf shows up all beaten up on his horse and there's not really a reason for it it's true yeah so you know if you've seen the hobbit i i think that this is an interesting adventure in watching it again and Mm -hmm. i think that there's elements of this edit that are really well done oh for sure i think the problem with it is mostly just that it's when peter jackson and his team made these movies and through no fault of peter jackson's like what happened with the hobbit production is insane and the things that they dealt with scheduling and coming in late because Guillermo del Toro left, like the, the things behind the scenes of The Hobbit really didn't set them up for success very well. Mm-hmm. But I think that what they put out was a much more complicated story than I think that you can tell in four hours and 21 minutes. I think that yeah. there is a lot that happens in the three Hobbit movies. Yeah, the problem is a lot of it I find unnecessarily and it slows down everything. Um, oh, I, I, I totally get that. I just mean that when you're cutting it out, it, you can't then explain how people get places because how they get there yeah. is part of this complicated other arc. The thing, though, going back to that, like, especially specifically regarding Gandalf, the first time he disappears and comes back is kind of odd. But I honestly didn't mind the second time because, you know, Gandalf well, he is, says he's leaving. He says he's leaving. Yeah. And then... Um, and, and then... You know, he says, like, I wouldn't do it unless it was absolutely of utmost importance, Mm -hmm. whatever exactly he says. And then, you know, and then he comes back late and injured. I almost find that a bit more interesting than knowing what happened. You know what I mean? Because he's kind of this, I mean, he's technically a god, is it? yeah yeah he's one of the Maiar so like a demigod I guess yeah I'd... like Cassandra in Assassin's Creed Odyssey <laughs> that's not a game I've put any time into no I'm only at 82 hours it's fine <laughs> um yeah I don't know I there's something though about that bit of mystery that I actually find more compelling mm-hmm. yeah I, I hear what you're saying I just think that it distracts from the fact that he found this mission to be so important. Yeah. And also he just, he's like, I have to go do this important thing. Yeah. I, I mean, it doesn't really make sense. I just, it just, uh, I guess, I guess the reason why I like it is because it gets me thinking, you know, if these movies were done again or story, other stories, you know, I mean, Amazon's doing a Lord of the Rings series, mm-hmm. hopefully at some point. <laughs> um, I, I don't know that's just like a storytelling device that I kind of find fascinating is having those characters who are just so 
almost beyond like i mean mortal beings to Mm -hmm. put it in those kind of terms um i I find that fascinating i think there's really clever ways that that can be used like the eagles what are they doing well uh, do you think the amazon series gets into what the eagles are doing when they're not being a deus ex machina for the plot Um, I hope so. You know, just... I'd love to know some names, some backstories. I would love a whole episode with no talking, just eagle squawks, <laughs> a la the Star Wars holiday special. Oh my god! Wow, you had to throw that and one like, in there. And like the grandpa eagle is watching weird holographic television stripper. <laughs> oh right! Oh, you haven't? Yeah, yeah I, I've you shown know, you clips, so you haven't actually watched the whole thing. We skimmed through it, and that is enough for me to. to you know just I, uh, no on november 17th we have to watch it it's it's a tradition i'm i'm actually busy that day oh really yeah i have plans we there are there's what are plans yeah i have plans that's not a thing anymore no i do it's in my calendar <laughs> um but that brings us you know to the relationship between star wars and the hobbit i think mm-hmm. that you know there's a weird relationship between these movies and the star wars prequels because they exist in a space where they are both trilogies <laughs> that followed behind very successful trilogies mm-hmm. um, made by the same filmmaking team with characters, actors. I, I mean, that it is interesting how much they have in common mm-hmm. and how in a lot of people's minds, they both kind of have the same failures. I think that um, a lot of people mm-hmm. dismiss the Star Wars prequels because of the reliance on CGI and the same thing sort of happened with the hobbit where there's you know the the flips and the oh it looks like video game combat yeah and And it's all green screens bard riding that um rickshaw down the alley to stab the The wagon oh my god yeah um you know there's things that the first trilogy didn't have because it was all very grounded i mean the closest thing was legolas riding the shield down the stairs and even, even that, that like, it looks... I could, I snowboarded and skateboarded when I was a kid. I might be able to pull that off. I mean, you know what I mean. But like, <laughs> like within it's the not world of reality, I've, yeah, I've gone down the stairs on a skateboard. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. not the craziest thing in the world. Yeah, and if you were thousands of years old and had been pra- doing target practice with a bow and arrow since you, you know, you could walk, I, it's you know, it's feasible. But. Legolas, I mean, his his physics breaking stuff is not in this cut. He's it's totally cut out. Mm-hmm. But in the Hobbit, he the the running oh, of the God. falling rocks is the wildest thing to watch. Yeah, I can't. It, yeah, for me, it's like that which they cut out. But the thing that they did keep, like all the like Goblin King stuff, I just. I think that's because <laughs> I think their goal was to try and keep as much of the stuff that's in the books and i'm pretty sure that Mm -hmm. goblin king scene is in the books yes they do like that because that's how he finds the ring yeah and i think that a lot of that dialogue also comes from the books which is why it's in there the way that it is yeah and i totally get it it's just watching it makes me cringe yeah i I feel like the goblin king could have looked less like just a swinging testicle You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's unnecessarily scrotum-y. Yeah. It, it, the design could have been a little more... Mm. Goblin-y. <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite design in that whole scene, though, is the pen pal goblin in his little, his little rickety chair. 
Oh, his little zipline? His little zipline. And he's got his little <laughs> writing tablet. And I'm like, I want to know more about him. I want yeah. him to show up in the Amazon. Do you think the Amazon series is a prequel? It is. It's um, 90 years before The Fellowship of the Ring, I believe. So, so that means 30 years before the... Hobbit? Hobbit. Weird timing. Yeah. Well, because I think, if if I've been looking correctly but um i think it's like about the dunedain mm. i think i yeah i don't know there hasn't i don't think so there's, there's been gonna a, be a young aragorn i think so i think oh. that was the idea i could be totally wrong but for some reason that's in my brain right now although who knows it could have been speculation and who knows you know where their production's at with the world being in the you know production state that it's in i mean i told my agent i had to be on that show so if they're taking a little break right now it gives me more time absolutely i'm fine with I, that. I was interesting i saw today that the batman this is not a prequel although it kind of is because it's about a young bat bruce a young batman um is one of the is has been given the go-ahead to start filming again in the uk oh wow yeah, really yeah so they're gonna start doing whatever their version of filming in covid times it looks like so are they all quarantining together do we have any information we aren't i haven't heard anything yet all i know mm-hmm. is that they were given the go-ahead to start you know building their plan and coming back okay which means things are coming back which is you know um good Exciting. i think you know getting people out of their homes will be nice for everyone uh, yeah i think people need to get back to work a little bit you know yep um i know that i'm losing my mind a little bit yeah sorry uh but going back so stars prequels versus hobbit prequels Mm -hmm. which which set of prequels do you feel like is the better addition to the franchise oh man (laughs) okay that one is that one's really tough for me because the star wars prequels came out when i was young And when I saw them as a kid, I thought they were fantastic. I loved them. Mm -hmm. You know, like, couldn't get enough of them. Um, And, you know, watching them as an adult, I'm like, yikes. Um, uh, Not that it's all bad, but there are things that are just, wow. Um, So, it's, hmm. And then on the other side of that, Lord of the Rings is my favorite movie trilogy of all time and the hobbit just really really doesn't stand up um wow that is a really tough question i don't actually know see for me it's an easy answer because i i star wars love the star wars prequels Mm -hmm. um uh, attack of the clones is tough for me it's very long Mm -hmm. and the only stuff in it that I truly love is the Kenobi stuff. Mm-hmm. I love the Kenobi storyline in Attack of the Clones. Um, other than that, that movie is long and bloated and difficult, I think. It's it's the hardest of the three stories that the prequels try and tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, when I was young, that was my favorite one to watch just because of the arena scene. The arena scene's great. <laughs> and honestly, the last, like, the last act of that movie is pretty solid. Mm-hmm. It's just that there's so much, like, random going around. It, it introduces my favorite Star Wars character. If you watched our Padme Amidala makeup video <laughs> on May 25th, you know how much I love Dexter Jetster. Uh-huh. Kenobi! <laughs> for the common orange. I love him. He's he's wonderful. But um, yeah, if you haven't seen that video yet, you should check it out. We do some uh, fun silly. Star Wars trivia. It's <laughs> silly. Um, 
so but i love phantom menace and mm-hmm. i love revenge of the sith i think both those movies are i i, I still watch them constantly and I, I very much enjoy them i think the difference for me is that they're bo- the star wars trilogy is original mm-hmm. and it adds to the universe you know what uh, sorry to interrupt you there but n- now that you're saying this and i think about it i think that the star wars prequels definitely add more than the hobbit does to the lord of the rings trilogy for sure i will say though i think the hobbit might be a better prequel as a book oh for oh yes but the adaptation doesn't work as well for me as the star wars prequels do. i agree completely because the hobbit book is is a it's great classic it's like an all-time literary classic novel yeah. for children like i mm-hmm. would put it i for that like nine to thirteen year old young reader i would put that in like the top books for that kind of age group mm-hmm. of all time you know i'm not going to give a 12 year old boy pride and prejudice <laughs> It's, a, it's oh, a bit much at that age. Yeah. Whereas I think The Hobbit is kind of a great chapter novel. I was already reading Lord of the Rings at that point because <laughs> I had a problem. Um, but we're readers, if you can't tell. We are. We are readers. We are here to talk about a book after the break. Yes. Um. But just before going to that, I I just you know I want to. You know, I, I, I just want to read it. Like, I love the Star Wars prequels. And I think, you know, I, before we go into the break, I just want to ask you, what do you think makes a good prequel? And what do you think gives a prequel, like, a raison d'etre? Which, for those sorry, who don't speak what? French, <laughs> uh, a reason for being. What do you think makes a prequel worthwhile? Um. Well, I think... This is a great segue, I think, actually, into our next section because um, I was very pleased with uh, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes um, because I think I think what I think what makes a prequel good is what it brings to the original story. So if that's shedding light on someone's backstory or their character or their upbringing or it kind of gives you a little bit of insight and backstory and uh as to like those characters that you already love as to like who they are or hate in you know ballads songbirds and snakes Mm -hmm. but i think um when it really kind of gives you that almost like inside knowledge Mm -hmm. when you go back like if we were to go back and read the hunger games I feel like I'd know something a little extra. Like I'd be in on like a little secret. Mm-hmm. Whereas for The Hobbit, like as you say, the the book itself I think is great. Mm-hmm. And as a prequel, I think it's fine. But I don't really know. Mm-mm-mm. It's been a while since I've read it. So I'm trying to choose my words carefully. But it doesn't give me that same feeling of insight into the characters and maybe that's only because Bilbo's hardly there and mm-hmm. Gandalf you don't actually know much about Gandalf in either series and he's been through so much that it's such an it's a blip in time like yeah. to him it's it's nothing 
Um, whereas the Star Wars prequels, you get to know about Darth Vader slash Anakin. That gives you some real interesting information when you go back mm. and watch the originals. Same with Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, it definitely Yoda, makes like complicated. Yeah, but that's... Especially in Star Wars because there's some inconsistencies. R2-D2 and Obi-Wan's relationship is weird in A New yeah. Hope now. It is weird. But I think done well that's the kind of thing that i love about a prequel Mm -hmm. is when it really gives you something extra when you go back and watch the original i think that's what i love so much about the prequel work that's been done in the animated series for star wars Mm -hmm. in that um and and that i really love about solo solo i know and and rogue one solo does not get the credit that it's due i think that movie's delightful and i (laughs) i really enjoy it um and the arc that Han Solo goes on in that movie, I think people are sleeping on how much that story means to his character in the future. But um, the animated series, Clone Wars and Rebels, make the... The Clone Wars series leads into how the Empire comes to be in a way that the movies just can't accomplish with you know a fraction yeah, of the time. Absolutely. But between Rebels and Solo and Rogue One, the feeling of the empire becomes so dire and dark Mm -hmm. that watching a new hope after getting through those series and those movies really ups the danger of them yeah i feel like the stakes are suddenly just yeah and it just makes that desperate last fight against the empire seem so much more valuable and and Mm -hmm. I, i really love the work that did dave floney in particular did with um, rebels and with the clone wars mm-hmm. that last season was so good and uh, you know mandalorian now he's working on that and i'm so excited to see season of two of that um, absolutely in october uh, but yeah i just i think that for me at the same i think prequels for me mm-hmm. only work when they f- make the world more interesting to me yep um but i also like when they are unre- they're a part of the world in an unrelated way to the original story I think that a lot of what doesn't work for me in prequels is when they try and connect too hard to what comes after. Uh, To me, that doesn't feel much like a prequel. Like, it's, I mean, it's kind of like in Harry Potter, I don't think, I don't feel like Fantastic Beasts is really a prequel. It has nothing to do with Harry and that whole storyline. Like, I feel like it's in the same world. I know it's technically a prequel because it takes place beforehand and you know but it just i don't know i feel like stories like that which i i think can be wonderful and delightful where you know you take a world that someone already knows very well and loves possibly and you you give them more to flesh out that world i think is great but i think i i disagree about harry potter just because fantastic beasts 2 mm-hmm. introduces dumbledore in a way that is and Grindelwald in a way that links it to the Harry Potter story. Yeah. And we're going to, you know, in three, four, and five of that series, we're going to get the story of the Elder Wand, and all of that is going to happen. Yeah, I guess that's why that didn't really feel like a... uh, The stuff that doesn't work for me in Fantastic Beasts is the stuff that leans too hard into trying to remind you of Harry Potter. Hey, it's McGonagall. Yeah, and and that doesn't work because she's not alive yet. Yeah. When I first saw it, I was like, oh mcgonagall's mom must have been yeah and then you're a like, teacher at hogwarts and they're like no second. that's minerva and i'm like no it's not well yeah it literally can't be her mom because her mom didn't have the last name mcgonagall she married a muggle 
Well, but her, then her mom would have had the last name McGonagall after that, though. Mm, yeah, that's, but... That's it's... how marriage used to work. Now we hyphenate. <laughs> now we hyphenate. I hate hyphens. Uh, Sorry. I, it, <laughs> this, that's the dumbest thing. I just, like... If hyphenation are... works for one generation, but then the next generation isn't going to have four hyphenated last names. Well, the other thing as well is if, like, both last names are, like, four syllables long. It just... Oh, yeah. Can you imagine if Cumberbatch and, like... I can't even think of another long last name. I don't know. But like, can you imagine if someone's name was like Neville Cumberbatch Longbottom, hyphenated together? <laughs> can you imagine trying to fill out any form with the last name Cumberbatch Longbottom? It wouldn't like fit in those like Scantron bubble oh, sheets. Oh God, doing your customs form to get into Canada? No way. It'd take forever. No, there wouldn't be enough spots. <laughs> You'd have to request two forms. Well, we've fully lost the plot, so we're yeah. going to jump to our ad break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about the new Suzanne Collins Hunger Games book, Songbirds and Snakes. We're going to talk about whether or not it's a worthy prequel, mm-hmm. whether we enjoyed it, and whether you should pick it up. We'll see you after this. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed our little ad read there for Anchor, <laughs> the service making all this possible. Mm-hmm. We both read... Well, actually, no. I read the new hunger games book the ballad of songbirds and snakes i don't know if we've said the title enough in the podcast the, the ballad of songbirds and the snakes. ballad of very song, long at least it's not trolls world tour because <laughs> i can't i just can't trolls world tour we we need to watch that yeah let's I... watch that for next week because next week we're going to be talking about artemis fowl mm-hmm. so let's watch that we'll watch scoob we'll watch artemis fowl and then we'll talk about all these digitally released movies next week. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> We're planning on the podcast for the podcast. <laughs> but we, I read the book and you listened to it on Audible. I sure did. Which is not a sponsor. Hopefully one day because they sponsor a lot of podcasts. So hopefully. Yeah. Um, what was the most interesting part of listening to the audiobook? Oh, wow. Well, okay. So to be clear, I did, once David had finished the book just read the last like couple chapters because i'm a much faster reader um yeah because we're running out of time today yeah and i just i i actually find it much more difficult to retain information when listening to it um Mm. so it was actually it was funny reading the last few chapters i never realized how much i paid attention to like how people's names are spelled and how they look on a page Mm -hmm. so that was kind of interesting actually um Right, because I have no idea how a lot of the names are said. Yeah. Because I I invented, like, Sejanus. Yeah. I don't know. I don't even know how he said it in the book. But... That's that, that's how the it was said in the audiobooks. Was it one person's voice? It was. I've never listened to an audiobook. <laughs> Usually I... it's one person's voice, and they, they put on, like, slight lilts or accents or pitch variations for characters. Mm-hmm. So I I'm, I I think I'm gonna listen to a podcast in the near or uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts. But <laughs> listen to an audiobook in the near future to try and get that experience because I've never had it. Yeah, it's fun. I used to listen to the Harry Potter audiobooks, like to fall asleep, to drive to, like all the time. What's like, wild is I have them and I've never listened to them. Yeah. So I'll I'll make that a priority. But did you think that his voice did a good job of portraying the story that was being told? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was happy with it. I've never really listened to an audio book where I'm like, ooh. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I generally, I found, yeah, I found I found his voice easy to listen to. Um, 
the uh, differences in character voices were very small and sometimes not very noticeable, but that's, I find, I mean, I don't listen to a lot of audiobooks, but I find that that's generally the case. They don't make these like grand changes. I don't, I don't need, you know, if it's something like um, the Dooku audio, the Ventress Dooku audiobook that came out last year, um, where it's intentionally performative and they have different actors playing the parts, then fine. But yeah. if yeah, I feel like for me I would rather them just be reading yeah. the way that I would read it. Yeah, and that's what it mostly is and, and that's what I like. The only time it gets weird for me is when they read out song lyrics. Oh, because there's a lot of song lyrics in this book. Yes. The ballad of songbirds and snakes yes. has a lot of music in it. Um one of the main characters, Lucy Gray who is the District 12 tribute. Mm-hmm. Um, she is a performer, technically from outside the districts. Yeah. Um, the She's Col- Covey. Covey, yeah. Which I guess is their version of like... Uh, I People don't say gypsy anymore, right? Because that's... I think that's technically a racial slur. Okay, well, or I'm sorry. I don't I'm, I'm, know. Yeah, um, but <laughs> I think that's kind of the idea that the book is yeah going for yeah um they're like they're they're musicians who lived and traveled outside of the districts and then now live in district 12 um so i guess we should we we haven't really talked about the the main plot of the book follows who we know as president snow yes from the hunger games name is coriolanus coriolanus he has the the book takes place 64 years before we meet katniss everdeen Mm mm-hmm um at the 74th hunger games for the 10th hunger games yes when coriolanus is a schoolboy about to graduate and he he, he's tasked with being one of the first mentors um so the hamich in the original if you've read the original hunger games hamich is the mentor for katniss and pita Mm -hmm. and so in this they're trying out a new program for the first time where they're going to give mentors to the contestants um yeah in order to try and have more people be interested in the games yeah i think that's like kind of the big um plot point is the game maker uh dr gall gall yes that's it um they so they are pushing to try to get more participation from um the audience and more engagement for the hunger games because nobody is really at this point invested in them or watches them. They're not the spectacle that they are. In fact, people would rather not. Yeah. They're, they're gross. They're uncomfortable. Yeah. And no one no one wants to be reminded of the war because it was a terrible time. And, you know, it affected everyone in districts and capital. Um, yeah, I, I thought one of the things the books, the, this book did really well early on was set itself apart from the world of the hunger games and it felt very different which is great and like i could see you know going back to the star wars example it's hard to see how 20 years has passed between those two franchises technology wise and mm-hmm. world wise everything is kind of things are more run down but yeah. you don't go to the capitals in star wars we were on fringe planets Mm -hmm. this did a really good job of being like oh yeah i could see how 64 years difference yeah they had huge differences in technology Mm -hmm. um like this was the first time they tried the drones to bring gifts to the uh tributes and they're like kind of these dinky little things that don't always work the greatest (laughs) they get better they get better um I, I, i i maybe let's be careful about spoilers 
we'll we'll do spoilers at the end okay yeah but just general (laughs) uh, yeah just i you know just because people haven't read it no you're totally right jump to spoilers at the end but for the the idea is how did you feel about the portrayal of Coriolanus snow as the protagonist knowing that he becomes this monstrous kind of villain 65 years years and not even that long i mean he was the president for a long time before katniss everdeen (laughs) yeah that's true um yeah so it was it was very interesting what you said to me kind of before we really even you know dove into the book was um you know it's like if someone had written a book about young hitler Mm -hmm. and he was the protagonist and and you had and 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 the book by its nature needed you to invest in his success or failure yeah and you know what um the book i think i think suzanne collins did a wonderful job actually of making him sympathetic and relatable especially for the first i would say at least the first half if not more i mean you see definitely a change Coriolanus has a wild arc through mm-hmm. the entire book the book um, has a wild arc i mean yeah yeah if, if you're worried that because <laughs> the hunger games come hap- the, the 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 plot of the hunger games happens so much later that there's not gonna be a lot that happens in this book don't oh, worry wow yeah it's it's full and it's i you know i it was one of the things i wanted to know how it ended i wanted to continue mm-hmm. with the story because it was very compelling um but yeah him being the protagonist was very interesting um and, and without um, without spoiling anything, it kind of felt, especially later on in the book, that his friend Sejanus was more your typical protagonist in a way. Oh, if the Hunger Games didn't already exist mm-hmm. and this wasn't a prequel, Sejanus would have been the main character. Of this yeah, book. he's very much has the quality. Or there would have been a different ending. Yes, for sure. But he very much has the qualities of the guy who is the main character because he, you know, has the backstory for it, the emotional drive for it, mm-hmm. that like push for change. That the you know, it, uh, and Coriolanus is, it, yeah, it, it, he's he's an interesting character to have as a protagonist. I, I feel, and I this definitely relates to the cultural moment that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. It was interesting to watch or to read this book while watching the images that we're seeing on the news and everything mm-hmm. and on Instagram uh, and across social medias that it, I read this book very much as a meditation on privilege and Absolutely. the corruption of privilege. Mm-hmm. And Coriolanus has so much privilege yeah in so many ways and has also seen a lot of that privilege stripped away from him mm-hmm. and how he responds to that is a really fascinating and very topical look at the world that we live in right now mm-hmm. and it made parts of the book really hard to read uh, there yeah. is there are elements of his character that are so driven by those ideas we see in toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. and the ideas talked about about toxic masculinity right now that he became a very um difficult protagonist to sit with at times particularly in his relationship with lucy Mm -hmm. the so he so he gets assigned her uh the 
He's her mentor for the Hunger Games. Yes. So she's... Which happens at the beginning. It's not really a spoiler. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the whole book. I mean, we can't talk about anything that happens without that. Mm -hmm. Um, And he comes to view her as property in a way that is... It's uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. And and I'm I'm, uncomfortable to read... But I'm very glad that that's where the book goes and that that's the direction it takes. Yeah, I'm glad it, I didn't shy away. It doesn't it doesn't try and make him a good guy. Even when he's given opportunities to be a good guy, mm-hmm. there's this underlying toxic masculine energy that he gives off and this gross ownership that he gives off that... Even though he's not a bad guy, that's the thing. You know, he... It's more complicated than that. It's much more complicated. And I'm glad that the book... It, is willing to go as far to talk about it in the way that it is, especially a book that in my mind is aiming at a teenage Teenage and young adult audience. For sure. I'm going to buy this book for my brother. Yeah. And I think it's, I think I would actually love for a lot of young men to read it and then have conversations with people who can kind of show them how kind of gross his behavior is i would be concerned that there'd be a lot of 14 year old boys who would see how coriolanus is behaving and want to emulate it just because of a lack of maturity but I'm, there's there, yeah. there are elements of his character that i'm like i i was surprised to see the take given the audience that this book is for this this is a very complicated and maturely themed novel mm-hmm. about a kind of gross relationship between a man and a woman and the ways in which toxic masculinity and male jealousy and male ownership and all of these false ideas that people believe in mm-hmm. and lead them to do terrible things lead to terrible events. And I, I really... <laughs> This book felt more real and more personal and more driven towards our real world than the Hunger Games ever did to me. And that's what I think really sits with me now, having finished it. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I really want to reflect upon as I move forward as, you know, as a six foot four white man, (laughs) you know. Blonde hair, blue eyes, the whole works. You know, (laughs) truly the most... I, I live with an immense amount of privilege and I have to be very aware of that and, you know, do my best mm-hmm. as a man to, you know, try and fight those tendencies that uh, have been taught in a lot of ways in the society that we live in. They're definitely reinforced. I yeah, I, I think, you know, this was uh, a read for me right now, especially with the cultural moment going on to be to sit with myself and kind of think about how is my behavior appearing and how is my behavior affecting other people in a way that Coriolanus is so manipulative and so intentionally manipulative. He is, he preempts his thoughts on manipulating people Yeah. in a way that I hope I never do because it was difficult to read. It made me uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think especially like something that kind of just occurred to me is that you know, we had the insight into Coriolanus's head while this is going on. But from the outside to other people and to Lucy Gray, you know, nothing really seemed amiss. Yeah. You know, the way that they interacted with each other and the, you know, how, how they were together, like, publicly, you know, um, it's, ugh, I don't know. 
it yeah it makes me really uncomfortable because you know lucy gray is in a position where she views Coriolanus in a way that we as the reader know is not healthy Mm -hmm. i think is the word oh there is nothing healthy about that relationship yeah but there's nothing that would like she has no signs of that you know what i mean like she has no reason really to believe like to 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 believe how he's thinking about her because their circumstances are so extreme you know they're like um i think that like directly reflects their relationship well and i I think that her coming from such poverty and, and you know she she's not impoverished in the sense of family relationships or empathy mm-hmm. or care the way that Coriolanus is. Mm-hmm. He is truly he's impoverished in a lot of ways. He has no money for food or, you know, and he he doesn't have that warm other than his cousin Tigris. Tigress. Tigress. Um, he you know he doesn't have that like loving bond with people the way that she does, and so she, yeah, she he's has really that. close to her, and that's it. But she has truly nothing else, and so when he begins to be able to provide for her for the games, it it makes a relationship twisted in a way that is interesting to read because we only really get his point of view, mm-hmm. and you know it it is interesting to see the female character in this series take a back seat mm-hmm. um especially in the way that you know katniss was so prominent in the hunger games trilogy mm-hmm. to see the female lead of this be such an object and be so objectified and for the plot of the book to involve so much objectification of her and with her being a performer <clears throat> yeah you know, like that's coriolanus has to objectify her in order to succeed in the games and to try and keep her alive. Yeah. And that becomes, that objectification becomes a part of the relationship between the two characters mm-hmm. in a way that's ugh, gross. Yeah. I mean, it, it is interesting though that we got to see a bit of the struggle that he had, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, uh, mm, uh, I'm trying to think of like a a a good example i guess would be when her hands get burnt and he's worried that like spoilers i I, yeah i know i'm trying to be like super vague but i'm sorry guys i don't mean to but yeah he, he does he he cares about her but it's, you know, when when he sees that her hands are healing, his first impulse is great. She'll be able to play the guitar for the interview. Yeah. You yeah. know. It's always about him. Yeah. And. And he doesn't seem to have a problem with that. He, <laughs> no. He, you, it's his def, it's his pride and joy about himself. Is yeah. That he's able to navigate these situations. Yeah. He thinks of very highly of himself. And Snow lands on top yeah (laughs) it's yeah talking about this is so complicated because i really do like he has redeeming qualities and i do feel for him in certain parts of the book especially in the beginning you know that it's um yeah he's a very complex character to kind of analyze i i think for me the the redeeming qualities about him all come in the moments when he is 
fighting against his programming. Not literal programming, but, you know, <laughs> cultural programming. Yeah, his upbringing. To be a better person. Mm -hmm. And the problem with him as a character is how consistently he makes the wrong choice at the end. Yeah. He makes the right choice a couple of times mm -hmm. to get to the decision. And he always makes the wrong choice. And the tension of the novel that becomes so fascinating and, and really is what invests you in continuing to read it, in my opinion, is you keep thinking, well, this is the time he'll make the right choice. Yeah. And it makes the choices that are made by all the characters in the final part, the book's broken up into three parts, the choices made in the final part of the novel are so high stakes mm -hmm. and they're so interesting and they're so filled with character on all sides mm -hmm. and it's his constantly making bad choices in the first two parts but also he's you know he succeeds in a lot of ways he fails in a lot of ways he he has ups and downs in the way that you want your character to mm -hmm. i honestly i think the novel's really well written yeah, i, I really I, I really liked it and i think it's a having read the hunger games and seen the movies and liked them particularly the books um mm -hmm. and the first two movies i think the maturity of susan collins writing is so much more advanced in this yeah i think it's a great addition and i think that thematically this book is so strong mm -hmm. but it doesn't pull it but be, it is strong because it doesn't pull any punches it is not uncomfortable with the idea of its reader being uncomfortable yep and it feels much more like an adult novel to me because of that it really it, it is a deep and interesting and thought-provoking read yeah for sure and i i am i love how you know Coriolanus views himself to have such a composed and i guess in a way like unreadable exterior i don't know if that's quite the word i'm looking mm -hmm. for but you know dr gall obviously sees something in him you know he mm -hmm. doesn't he doesn't put off the front that he thinks he does you know he fools he fools some people but that like that darker side to him i don't think he conceals as well as he thinks he does um which in a way i feel bad because um it's definitely preyed on by mm -hmm. gall because you know by the, it, the only person in the room smarter than him at the game yeah and and i think you know i actually think in a way it's well i mean it's kind of tragic because you know coriolanus snow might have grown up to be a very different person had his um worldview not been pushed so hard and influenced in this way mm. and you know that's a that's a huge part of you know the ongoing theme of the hunger games and of this novel mm -hmm. but y that that upbringing and nurturing and your external circumstances plays such a big part in um how we come to the decisions that we make mm. so i think we've both been very positive but before we jump into spoilers mm -hmm. would you say that you recommend the book yeah yeah absolutely um it was um a fast-paced read mm -hmm. um yeah for 620 pages it it, it clipped by. along yeah for sure um i 
Yeah, I like to be honest, I don't really have much negative to say. I I enjoyed the writing of it. I enjoyed the themes of it. I thought it was well executed and in depth. Um you know, I honestly think maybe there's more to be said there that, you know, could have been even still no i th- I think she did a great job there yeah. was there was there's a part at the end which maybe we can talk about after you know we I'm sure talk we will. about spoilers but there, um i i might have liked to have seen uh some you know what some changes there but for the very end hold that thought but for on just the, one second mm-hmm. i'm just gonna quickly say we're gonna jump to spoilers so if you haven't read it yet <laughs> Please come back and listen to the spoiler talk after you've read it or listen through and spoil the book for you. What could go wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but I also recommend that you uh, pick this up and read it. If you're a fan of the Hunger Games, I think that you're really going to enjoy this. And if you're not a fan of the Hunger Games, I think that um, this is actually a weirdly good book to read right now. Yeah, it's it's very relevant to what's happening on in the world. and Particularly from the perspective of why white men sometimes behave the way that they do. Yeah. And you know what? It stands alone. So you don't Mm -hmm. have to read the Hunger Games trilogy, I don't think, to enjoy this book. I don't think so at all. I think it totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, with that, we're going to jump into it. Uh, If you are jumping off here, (laughs) please follow Nerdy Nightly everywhere that you can. Uh, We'll have videos coming up later in the week. Another Mm -hmm. baking video based on Artemis Fowl uh, coming up on Friday (laughs) and maybe something else this week. Uh, We're working on it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We also uh, are going to have podcasts every Monday. So subscribe to this if you found this subscribe on whatever service you found it on um but if you found it on our website or elsewhere we are on apple Podcasts, spotify breaker and a variety of others uh so i hope that we'll see you in the future mm-hmm. and um if you are out in the world tonight or in the coming nights through what's going on we hope that you stay safe and we hope that mm-hmm. you protect yourself um there is still a very dangerous disease out there in the world and um yeah I have a growing concern for the protesters uh, and their health. And I just hope that everyone manages to stay safe and healthy and all this. And that we see a brighter future in the next, uh, you know, few months. I hope that people are able to get back to their lives a little bit more. And um, that the lives that we get back to are an improvement on what came before and not a return to the status quo. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you. And uh, we will see you after the theme song. (laughs) all right so uh it's spoiler time just Mm -hmm. in case you jumped in now i don't know how (laughs) you would do that but we're talking spoilers for ballad of songbird and snakes Mm -hmm. what was that moment you were just thinking about uh okay i want to talk about the ending the very end with lucy gray and coriolanus so they've decided to run away together. Yep. <clears throat> and they they pack up their stuff. And just before they leave, you know, Coriolanus is told he has possibility, like he, he has a bright future possible. Um, Through officer school. Officer school. You know, he'd be sent to district The youngest two. person to ever pass the test. Yeah. Um, so he learns that and then he runs off with, he still runs off with Lucy Gray. And... It's, I think they said, you know, three or so hours to that lake. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get there and, you know, he sees the guns. Mm-hmm. So 
and and he he recognizes the gun that has his dna over it that would frame him for the death of mayfair yep yep i got that right um and you know it changes things it it puts them into perspective perspective for him and i definitely thought that the book was going in a direction that he would make the conscientious decision I thought there would be a confrontation where he would have to um, own up and look her in the face <laughs> and kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I knew she was going to die. <laughs> yeah. That was very clear. Um, it almost, I, I, yeah, I want to talk about that it kind of, I, I don't want to play, um, it almost felt like it played it a little bit safe. Because he didn't really see her. He didn't really know what happened. It was kind of like alluded to and made clear shortly afterwards. But I would have liked that moment where it was that conscious decision of looking someone in the face that, I mean, that you care about. And, you know, he he was ready to murder her in cold blood. I I didn't want that moment. Really? Yeah, because I feel like it would let him off the hook a little bit. Really? Yeah, I cuz what happens is that his jealousy and his manipulative manipulative personality leads him to believe these things about her. Yeah, he like he spirals. He spirals he, hard. Yeah, he like f- he thinks himself into a state Mm-hmm. where he invents a situation yeah this is and you know this is the acceptable thing to do and it i almost i mean i i believe that subconsciously that you know it's snow lands on top he comes first and so his brain tried to protect itself by um you know like a, like inventing this story that you know she was out to get him and then that she tried to kill him with snakes and that she was on to them and she knew all this and it, it, you know, um, but I just, I don't know. It it was missing that moment for me that. <sighs> but the song, <laughs> it, her death had to match the song. Yeah. It's the ballad of songbirds. No, I hear what you're saying. I just, for me, I loved that he didn't get to know. Well, I mean, leads... she disappeared. Yeah, but, but he lives forever with this little thing in the back of his brain that she could come back because he does not know if she's dead or not i guess and i think that there is some weird it's it's almost comeuppance to me it's the only comeuppance he gets because snow lands on top in this book he gets everything he gets money he Mm -hmm. takes over his friend's family yeah they just take him in and he's weird. like, yeah, sure. I'll Which be I get. Your... I totally get. Oh, 100%. But, but it, it's weird. He, yeah. He gets everything. And the yeah. only comeuppance in the novel and the only thing that Lucy Gray gets at the end of the book is that there's a needle in the back of his brain for the rest of his life thinking that she could come back. Yeah. And if he'd been able to kill her and bury her and knew that there was no way that she, he could be, ever be found out, then he he would be more comfortable okay but there's her disappearing and he probably shot her and she probably died yeah but he doesn't know 
and him not knowing and there being someone out there who could ruin him to me explains so much about the person that he becomes yeah on top of the stuff in the book that is about the person that he becomes yeah i know i think i think that's a good point actually um and i i didn't really think about that that like long-term um you know like you said the little like niggle in the back of your head i i think that the the spiraling comes quickly and i understand it and it totally worked for me but oh, the, for sure. the yeah him and lucy's relationship doesn't have a satisfying conclusion mm-hmm. which also i you know I'm, i i understand like sometimes the relationships don't and especially when you shoot her in the woods um <laughs> what do you okay reading that section of the book what do you think what do you think happened there what do you think was true what do you think he completely fabricated in his head and what do you think lucy gray was thinking in those moments i i really the problem one of the okay the problem with going down that road Mm -hmm. is that we don't really understand lucy at all Mm -hmm. and i feel like one thing the book and I don't think that this is Suzanne and Collins failing at writing her as a character. I think that it's a very intentional choice that she made to not allow the reader to know the real Lucy. We only yeah. ever see her through Coriolanus's eyes. Yeah. And so I don't know because I don't really know what her personality is. Just um, off of that, halfway through reading the book, um, I was like, oh, she's using him. She's going to break his heart and that's what's going to turn him cold. The book didn't go that way at, no. at all, which, you know, I, I was like, I would have oh. found that less interesting. Yeah, me too. And, you know, that's why I was like, oh, is that what's going to happen? And I was like, mm, okay. But no, it kept going and I was really happy with that. The but thing that would, and the, I, I just wanted to go back to why that's less interesting to me is because it would have given him someone to blame rationally. Yep. As opposed to his, everything that goes wrong for him is his own fault in a lot of ways. Yep. And because he is a privileged white man he still comes out on top Mm -hmm. and it's only because of his status and his family and his education and his intelligence which are all privilege is that other people in the that you know there's an extreme strata of privileges that he has yeah that puts him you know in a place in this society that is so above everybody else oh and he looks down on everyone else and he's straight up i mean he's an off person but he kills people and then calls them beasts like yeah it's it's kind of a wild view of humanity that him and that dr gall has and that he comes to co-opt slowly more and more of and we know that by the time katniss is in the hunger games 64 years later yeah he is fully adopted oh yeah he's very good at like rationalizing himself like thinking his way through any blame and fully very good at rationalizing that he has every right to his privilege Mm -hmm. in a way that you know i think a lot of real people do yeah that is why the you know fighting against racism is so difficult yep and you know discussion of anti-racism are so hard is because there are a lot of people who believe that they have privilege and that they should Mm -hmm. and that they're they end so much they should have the privilege so much so that they don't think that it's privilege Mm -hmm. which is such a bizarre fallacy that we've managed to create in american society yeah that there's no such thing as white privilege i i don't know where that started (laughs) but um 
but he you know he really is a manipulative jerk yeah um but at the other uh, at sometimes particularly in his relationship with sejanus there are times where he genuinely seems to want to help and there are other times where it seems manipulative and like Mm -hmm. he's using him Mm -hmm. but he does seem to have a kinship he also seems to care and love for lucy at times and tigress and well yeah that's different that's family though yeah all right i mean i don't know he doesn't really seem to love his grandmother but no but he even when he we're in full spoilers when he becomes a peacekeeper he says that he misses her early singing in the morning right yeah okay um and you know he's worried when they find out about the tax situation he's worried that when they move to a new apartment she won't sing anymore and that he'll miss it so like there's something about family that is so ingrained having been around the waspy waspy old money people of new york (laughs) as their cater waiter serving them hors (laughs) d'oeuvres i can tell you right now they care about those things in a weird way yep all right (laughs) i i this is a random story but i was um catering a shiva if you don't know uh shiva is a jewish practice where when someone dies they um have their doors open during the day and people come and visit them as they mourn mm-hmm. um and it's a communal mourning practice i think it's a very beautiful uh, thing but in new york the wealthy upper east side jewish families will have caterers pass out like sandwiches and drinks at their shivas yeah which is always super weird because it's like you and one other caterer who you don't know in full black dress clothes walking around some very opulent apartment while people are mourning it's a very mm-hmm. it's a it's a weird job, but it pays very very well. <laughs> um, but then I, I just remember this conversation um, where these two people were talking about someone who had just left, mm-hmm. and they're like, "I just talking about how much they hated this person." Wow. And just like oh, going on and on and on and on, and then then they're like, "Yeah, but she's Frank's daughter, so I love her." And I was like, "See, it's, that's that like that old money family thing where like you know." It's just a it's a different relationship with family mm-hmm. than the like you know my family we're like a like let's gather around the table for dinner and talk about the best and worst parts of our day kind of family yeah and I feel very lucky to have the family that I have I love them very much and I'm so grateful to be in quarantine with them and you know <laughs> it makes the day more interesting to have people around that you actually enjoy <laughs> talking to absolutely I don't you, you know if Corlinus was quarantined with his family I don't know that he would enjoy it so much. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because there's no power dynamic for him to play on there. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And he does seem to enjoy and feed off of the, I mean, the game, really. Yeah. Um, he plays the game. And what's interesting is that he is playing the Hunger Games and he doesn't even know it at first. Yeah, absolutely. Him being drawn into the Hunger Games is the most natural transition. Yeah. Well, and and it is natural. He jumps into the games. He's the first one there. Mm-hmm. He's the he's the he leads the charge on what being a mentor looks like because yeah. he does everything first. Yes, and he is so good at playing the game that every other mentor is playing catch up with him. Yeah, yeah, he's already you know ten yards ahead. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it, it's it's really interesting to see what aspects of the game that we know from the hunger games were spearheaded by coriolanus snow mm-hmm. and how uh, he had his hands in it from such an early point 
yeah yeah i mean he truly shaped them and then later spoilers you you know find out that so did his father mm-hmm. yeah um, that was a expected twist yeah well i was so unshocked by that yeah dean highbottom was a very interesting character yeah also he straight up is gonna murder him well and going so the dude's a drug guy like there is but going back to my first point that was what redeemed the lucy moment for me because i think like i think what i wanted at the end of the book was like you know a shift from him being kind of a likable person at the beginning of the book to the snow like more of the snow that we know from the hunger games and so when i was reading that lucy moment i was feeling a little disappointed Mm -hmm. but i actually liked that as an ending to tie up the book because i really saw that shift and Mm. you saw him getting everything that he wanted you know the power the privilege the money the all of it and how it definitely made him a worse person (laughs) well you know the moment at the end of the book that really sold the whole thing to me and especially the theme of him being this privileged white, disgusting, toxic masculinity or the representation mm-hmm. is the way he talks about marriage at the end of the book. Yeah. Oh, wow. Where he, that, that was the final twist of that screw mm-hmm. that put the whole book in place for me. Yeah. He, he talks about Livia, one of his fellow like rich. You yeah. Know, He's like, yeah, I'll, I'll just marry I someone I hate. I was Dowager so. Countess, which I think is a... <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I think it's a Downton Abbey. That I yeah, think yeah, that's the um, Maggie Smith is the Dowager Countess. I think. I think um, so. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean. They're they're aristocrats is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, and the way that he he wants to marry a woman who could never play with his heart the way that Lucy Gray did. Yeah, and he's he like, you know what? Better prop. if I hate her. He wants a prop. Yeah. Because that's how he views women, and that's the disgusting end of this book and you know what i i want to say i think it's not just women oh it's all people you know it's it's definitely isn't family yeah for sure like he really only has like even the people who take him in like ma and strabo plinth yeah yeah um sejanus's parents sejanus's parents so yeah so their son dies Mm -hmm. is hung for treason hanged hung i don't know i've never understood that whole that word um anyways <laughs> but you know is killed for treason and you know they have no idea that coriolanus is the one who brought that about and so they bring him into their family because they believe that their sons were close friends and in truth you know they saw coriolanus risk his life for sejanus so i understand their mode of thinking i but it his disdain for even those people who aren't they're they're not family and you know he's like i would never take the name plant you know he's very very much like these people can give me things but i don't want to i don't want to give back anything that means something to me and what's wild about that is that they provide him with the money to keep the penthouse and they become you know the providers for the family yeah but grandmom views ma ma as a, servant as a servant because she's got dementia which is very sad uh, dementia and alzheimer's is a very sad disease i you know yeah personal tragedy recently with that but um she literally views as a servant they move into the apartment underneath the snows yeah so even in like joining his clan he's they're not part of the family yeah and he manages to put the people who are paying for his life 
in a subservient position to him and think that that's the right thing to do. Yeah, literally the apartment underneath of them. Yeah. Like, it's... The depths of his just gross BS is insane. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I think that that, <laughs> you know, is. Are, do you have any last thoughts? Um... We did, you know what's weird? We didn't talk at all about the actual Hunger Games in this. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, we didn't really talk much about... It's not about, that much of the book. No, the, I mean, the games are a small third of the book, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the middle portion. And they're nothing like the Hunger Games that we know with all the crazy technology, these huge arenas, um, the mutations. Like, but, but we see... What's interesting to me is we see the beginning of almost all that. We see yes, the first time mutations are dropped in the arena with the snakes. Yeah. We see the first time betting happens. We see the betting first time... drones. And I, there's times. And Flickerman. That's the first time it was like hosted. Yeah. There's times in prequels where I feel like the callbacky stuff is very inorganic. Enforced. Yeah. Um, the stars and the hobbit both have that the strider moment with legolas <laughs> is that where you're like oh god yeah this book managed to not ever feel that way to me weirdly like i very much enjoyed seeing Be- because we know where things end up they didn't introduce the drones and they were the success. And of course they lasted the 74th Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. They introduced the drones as this like idea that maybe will work out and it doesn't really. And it's kind of a mess. Uh-huh. And, you know, they're manipulating it to kill off, to help um, Lucy Gray fight. Um, not Jasper. What's his name? Jerry? No, that's not it. Oh my God. Uh, what is her friend's? What is the? Is it? It's No, it's not Marcus it's the other it's no marcus is from district two yeah it's the 12 boy jersey no that's not it jesse no it's j is it it starts the j oh i know it starts with the j is it juicy no is it the juice is it oj simpson the juice no (laughs) he is a murderer (laughs) that's not controversial to say i feel like that can't be controversial to say. no my god oj simpson would have been great in the hunger games (laughs) Wow. Um, anyways, the uh, the, the boy from District, District 12, because we yeah. can't remember his name. It's like J- Jesse or... it's it's It starts with a J, and it's like oh, Essie or... <laughs> you, you talk, and I'm going to look it up. <laughs> um, yeah, no, what you were saying about it being, you know, organic, I think the introduction of these things and seeing where they come from actually felt very natural. And I was quite impressed by it. Um, and I, I don't know. I kind of, in a way, which feels weird, kind of want more. Like another, maybe, you know, the 40th Hunger Games or something. Um, to see, you know, how it evolves um, and where it comes from. Because, you know, at, at the 10th Hunger Games, the capital is in such a state where even the arena where the Hunger Games is held is just this old sports venue that they block off um, and they kind of have to makeshift into something that works, especially after, you know, the bomb gets goes off. There's mm-hmm. just some, like, barbed wire and rubble to, you know, close them in. Um, 
but uh, yeah i i it it uh makes me more curious about the world for sure i would love to see one that takes place like during a hunger games that is also the election where he becomes where Coriolanus snow becomes president oh yeah like if i was going to do a sequel to this i would make it around which would be not a book i want to read this year oh god i <laughs> uh, i don't really want to no we don't mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, deal with uh, Coriolanus Snow's election while also dealing with our 2020 election. Mm-hmm. But you know, if I was if I was going to get a sequel, I think that would be like the time. I would totally pick that up and read it. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the other the other thing we didn't really touch on much was Lucy Gray. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you said, it's kind of it's kind of because we don't. You know, we don't get that same insight with her as we do with Coriolanus. Um, you know, she's a performer and she um, makes it very clear that a lot of who she is for the people of the capital is an act and a performance. Um, but I found it very compelling mm-hmm. and, you know, well-written enough, like in, in a way that I didn't, I didn't feel like I really got to know her, but I did yeah <laughs> you know so then how do you feel about sejanus's arc like i said he is the type of character that i think would normally be a protagonist in a novel like this um you know he is um opinionated a bit hot-headed um definitely hot-headed yeah uh, to the point of being an idiot that's the problem he like he's obviously a smart boy you know he gets through school and everything like that and you know he has his moments but that's what i mean he has um protagonist attributes where you know it's a fault that gets them into trouble um but you know you kind of love that about them and you watch them grow and learn from that um yeah he is it it was interesting having that type of character in the story and not having them as the protagonist. Um, yeah, I, I just, you know, he, it's what's interesting to me about Sejanus is that he has an absurd amount of privilege as well, despite being the district. But he, mm-hmm. his father has so much money, which he resents. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he behaves publicly in a way that is so, like, a rich kid who knows he's going to get away with it because his dad can buy things off. yeah. And so his privilege is also kind of gross in a way because he puts his whole family and everyone around him in danger. At risk all the time, constantly. Because he's just like... he Because he's kind of whiny. Well, <laughs> well, and he's so aggressive about it. And the, the problem is, in saying that, he's right. And he's the only person in oh, the book who's on the right side. For sure. But like you said, you know, that hot-headedness yeah. leads to stupidity. Whereas if he had made smarter decisions, he could have, you know, the outcome of his of his life could have really influenced, well, hopefully, with all of his money, the people in the capital and the games and really made a difference. And when Coriolanus brings up the idea of that if you can just get to the point where you have the money, yeah, you can do what you want to do. And he yeah. gives it up. Yeah, he, he doesn't... You know, and ultimately doesn't make any change in the world, and you know, unfortunately, gets hung as a rebel. Dies, yeah. And you know, he's the only person in the book who I, I to Tigress, I agreed with. Like she's a, she seems like a good person for all that we see her of her. Yeah. We only really see her comforting her brother, so she's a pretty. 
her cousin. Her, her cousin. Yeah. She she's a pretty hard person to dislike for that. But he he's like I'm like I agree with you. Stop trying to get murdered. Yeah, and truly, and you know we've talked about you know Coriolanus. There's many times where, um, he has the opportunity to you know make a different and probably better more morally right choice and doesn't and the i think the real tragedy is that sejanus is the person who in five ten years you know has the true ability and means to make a difference in the world Mm -hmm. and he can't see past his own emotions which you know what i talk about right now and you know, I'm like, oh, well, you know what? He should have just, you know, been smarter about it. But I can't imagine what it would be like oh, to watch people, like, people that you knew, you know, forced to go into arena and kill each other. It's, it, well, I mean, you know, it goes back to our real what's going on in the world right now. Yeah. When people kind of talk about the rioting and the looting. And, you know, I, I know that there's arguments about it on all sides. And, you know and especially about who is actually doing the looting and, and the validity of that. But, mm. um, I, you know, I, I don't know enough to point fingers. And I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I just know enough to say that I think desperate times call for desperate measures. And it's easy for us on the outside, which would be like, well, play the long game. And in yeah. his mind, he's like, I, I can't, I can't watch the hunger games for those 10 years. Yeah. He's an emotional person, which a lot of people yeah. are. And that's And he's right. He, yeah, the, the, he is. I it is very difficult to be driven by your emotions mm-hmm. and also know that morally you are the right person. And that's why it's so tragic. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what really is tough. Because, you know, if I'm like, well, if I was in that situation, would I really have the, you know, self control or awareness to do anything differently Mm -hmm. you know or because i feel like a lot of people just you know i I feel like yeah for a lot of people you know that's not the case Mm -hmm. it's 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 hard i feel like um a lot of people are emotional beings and that that's hard to fault someone for you know i yeah I think this book is going to leave us with a lot to think about. And I think I'm, mm-hmm. I, I think this one's going to sit with me for a while. Yeah, absolutely. And we've talked about it for an hour. Whoops. <laughs> not whoops. It's a 90-minute <laughs> podcast this week. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Why not? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, 40 minutes of that, you have to have read a book that came out six days ago to understand. But Honestly, you know, give it a read. Yeah, I recommend it. If, if you haven't read it and you listened to all of that, read the book. <laughs> I, I, I think it is well worth your time. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I was worried that this was going to be just kind of a weird Hunger Games offshoot money grab kind of situation. Me too. And it's it's so not that. Yeah. I think it is it's the a... best Hunger Games book in my opinion. Yeah. Maybe I won't feel that way in a week or two. But right now, <laughs> I just think that it is the most thematically rich book in that series and, and Suzanne relevant. Collins literally outdid herself this time I, I yeah. loved this um I didn't love reading it in that it made me feel uncomfortable and it made me kind of think about myself and my privilege in ways <laughs> that are always uncomfortable but in ways that I know that I need to continue to do and I think more people need to do as well yeah and it's weird to think that that kind of emotional upheaval came from a Hunger Games book but I'm glad that it did mm-hmm. and um 
yeah, I, I, I think that this is, uh, I'm very, I'm very impressed. And I have a feeling that in a couple of years, I'm going to reread this one to go through that experience again, because I think that it's a valuable one. And I'm, I'm grateful to Suzanne Collins for going to the places she was willing to go with this. Yeah. Um, it could have been a fluffy, you know, dark Hunger Games driven book, but it's it's really not. The Hunger Games are a fraction of it. Yeah, uh, I truly think it stands alone as a great read. Mm-hmm. Um, some good relevant themes. And yeah, I it it's definitely one I would reread in the future. And it did make me want to go read the Hunger Games again. So would you want to see a movie adaptation of the book? Oh, that's tough. Um, I don't. No? I think I would. I don't really want to watch some creepy white dude leer at a girl for two hours. Yeah, I mean... The, the, the hmm. content of the book is mostly him looking at a woman going, I own her. Okay, that's. I wouldn't say that's most of the content. But the reason I say yes is because I think visiting those themes in different forms of media is valuable especially right right now and and i bet more people would see it yeah that's that's the reason i say yes because no i don't you'd have to go about it in a clever way because obviously coraline is is not going to have an inner monologue throughout a movie um that's true the the action does not revolve around him for the majority of it. It's a lot of him watching screens. Yeah, and his outward actions do not necessarily reflect what he's thinking. The actor would have to be... Or you do it American Psycho style. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I think we need to call it because this is going to be a 90-minute podcast. Yeah. Uh, if you stuck <laughs> with us through all that, thank you so much. Uh, my name is David Webb. I'm Arielle Edwards. <laughs> do something nerdy tonight. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.